Well, let's just be honest, church. Are we in a season of it or whatever? Three people this week from our church are having surgery, two funerals this week, and that's just before I'm leaving town. <laughs> it's, like, it's like everything's happening all at once, isn't it? But our God is in control and He knows all these things, doesn't He? I want to encourage you to specifically pray for Martha Smith. If you did not see the emails, um, Martha faces a pretty extensive surgery, a brain surgery um, this week. Um, this has happened really quickly. From getting some testing done to diagnosis to bang, 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 surgery this week. So um, we're prayerful that the tumor is benign, but still it's brain surgery, right? So we want to be praying for her, especially um, Karen Schwartz is having a knee replaced this week. Julie Sharp is having a hip replaced, and I will not joke about old age, Julie. I just won't do it to you. <laughs> How many of you like to look at internet memes? Some of you are lying. <laughs> Some of them are pretty, pretty funny. Some of them are just downright stupid. Some of them are just very misleading, too, and they're outright lies. I know it's hard to believe because if it's on the internet, it's got to be what? Exactly, right? There's one on the internet that just bugs the fire out of me, and I, I hope none of you have posted it anywhere where I might have seen it. I don't think any of you have, but if you have, I apologize in advance. There's this one, there's this internet meme that's out there that there are 365 explicit commands in the Bible to not fear, one for each day. Guess what? It ain't true. It ain't true. This week I did a little search. In your ESV Bible, and I know some of you carry others and that's great, in your ESV Bible, you will find 186 times in 38 verses this phrase, do not be afraid. Now, if you add in 33 other commands where we're told to fear not, that adds up to 219, which, let's be honest, is that a significant amount of times in the Bible where God tells us to not be afraid, right? That's significant, isn't it? And I have to stop and ask myself, why are we commanded to not fear 219 times? Okay, none of us are brain surgeons in the room. Why are we commanded 219 times to not be afraid, church? Because guess what? We sometimes what? Fear. In fact, some of us live from one fear to the next. We are prone to fear. Chapman University does a survey every year of the top 10 fears for a certain year. So their most recently published study was done for 2022, and I find it really interesting that these things are still relevant in 2023. In fact, some are even more. I want to just share with you the top 10 things that Americans either were very afraid of or really afraid of. I don't know the difference between very and really, but that's how they classify it, okay? Very being very afraid and then just really afraid, right? Number one, corrupt government officials. I don't get that at all. Why? Number two, people I love becoming seriously ill. 
Number three, Russia using nuclear weapons. That'll never happen. <laughs> Number four, people I love dying. Number five, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. Number six, pollution of drinking water. That was before East Palestine. Number seven, not having enough money for the future. All I say to that is, duh. Number eight, economic or financial collapse. Oh, come on, the FDIC has it all covered. We're good. Number nine, pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes. And number 10, biological warfare. It's an interesting list, isn't it? It reveals our misunderstanding of life and its purpose, though, doesn't it? What should have been at number one on that list? <laughs> Something like, what does God think about me, and, and, and am I good with God when I leave this life, right? That's, that's nowhere in Americans' top ten thinking. And, but when you think about that list, and let's be honest, there's some fearful things in that list, right? When you think about that list and you add in these other fears, like what people think about me, none of you in this room are afraid of that, are you? The fear of what people think about me, or the fear of failure, or the fear of people around me failing me, is it easy to see why we can easily be ruled by fear? Yet, God in His Word says in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So we have, this, we have this dual reality, don't we? There are plenty, thing, plenty of things around us to be afraid of. There are, in fact, when, you, when your list is exhausted, I can fill you in with a couple more to be afraid of, right? There's plenty of things to be afraid of, and yet we're told not to be afraid. And then we're even told on top of that, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down right at the beginning. Because I think because we all battle fear, I think it's really important for us to diagnose really what's at the root of our fear. And, and, and I would submit to you what's at the root of our fear is this. I fear when I don't see or view God correctly. When, when I have an improper view of who God is, I am going to be afraid. I mean, if you're watching the news this weekend, and, and who knows what you can trust about what's coming across the airwaves, but, but, if you're, but if you're watching the news this weekend, and you're not a little concerned about what's happening on the other side of the world, then maybe it's because you understand that God's got this, <laughs> and that He has all things under control. When you leave your house, and you're walking out, and you're preparing to do it, and you're, and you're thinking in your mind, do I look right? Uh, am I dressed properly? Um, what is so-and-so going to think of me? What are my coworkers going to think of me? Guess what? You know what that's rooted in? It's because you don't care enough about how God sees you. You care more about how other people see you. We all fear when we don't see or view God correctly. More specifically, when I don't see Him as powerful as sovereign, as loving, as faithful, and you can keep adding to that list, I will be prone to fear. If I don't believe the promises of Scripture, I will live my life in total fear. 
Our text today in Genesis chapter 32 and in the coming weeks deals with Jacob facing a severe test of faith. He, he's about to go into the, in, out of the frying pan and into the fire. And in fact, in our text today, Jacob is presenting, presented to us by Moses as he records this as greatly afraid and distressed. Anybody ever been there greatly afraid and distressed? Yeah. Jacob was there. And so I am reminded as we go to Genesis chapter 32 this morning that, that these were written for our instruction so that we might have hope. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? That God would write something for us so that we could learn from it and that we might have hope. So let's pray this morning. Then I want to read in Genesis chapter 32 and spend our time kind of unpacking that this morning. Father, yeah, we read in the words of Scripture, you've not given us a spirit of fear. You've given us a spirit of power, love, and self-control. Yet, if we are honest with you, and we have no choice but to, to be honest with you because you search our hearts, if we're honest with you, we have to come to this truth and this reality. There are times that we absolutely become petrified with fear whether it be fearful of the world around us and what's going to happen in that, or whether it be fear of, of man and what man can do to us, whether it be fear of, of how people think about me, whether it be fear of, of somebody else letting us down or somebody else hurting us, there are times that we are ruled by fear. So I pray that today from the Scripture, from Jacob's life, that you would instruct us so that we might have hope. That's, that's what we need more than anything. We need hope this morning, Lord. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 32. I'm going to read the first 21 verses this morning. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell you, my Lord, in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, we came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O oh God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O oh Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of these, of the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 
200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 10 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and he said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, these belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us, for he thought... I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. What a lonely night. What a lonely night. So as we begin to unpack this, the first thing I want you to see is something that we have repeatedly seen in Genesis... I hope you're not tired of seeing this, but you've got to bring this out. In verses 1 and 2, you see God being who God is. You see a faithful God. Jacob has now separated from Laban, and, and, and now in the light of the treaty that he's made with Laban, remember the treaty that he made at Mizpah, he is now, he is, he is set on his course. He has to go forward. He can't go back anymore, can he? Remember, as part of that treaty, both Laban and Jacob heaped up this big heap of rocks, and they basically said this, if either you or I cross this line, this heap of rocks, it's considered an act of aggression. And so Jacob now, he can't go back, he's got to go forward. We know from the text what is going on in Jacob's mind. To go forward means that he has to be reunited with whom? his brother. He's got to be reunited with Esau. He can't go back to Mesopotamia. He's committed now to getting to Bethel. He's on his way. Do you see that? Verse 32, verse 1, he's on his way. He, he has committed to this. He is going to do it knowing what lies ahead. And what does God do? <laughs> As Jacob is on his way, God comes to reassure him, doesn't he? Have you found this to be true? Look up here. Have you found this to be true in your life that at, there are times that God asks you to be difficult, to ask you to do difficult things? You found that to be true? In the course of doing that, have you also experienced this, at, at least at some point in your life, that in the course of doing that hard thing, God does something to reassure you in it? It's just like God to do that because he's a faithful God, because he's a good God. It's just like him to do that. What a remarkable act. But we shouldn't be surprised. When Jacob left, the first night he camped where? At Bethel. And what did God do? God literally showed up, didn't he? God literally showed up as he left. That's where he met the ladder from heaven with the angels going up and down. And now, 20 years later, as he's entering into the land that's been promised to him that he's going to inherit, what does God do? He shows up. Now, when I say show up, I don't mean to imply that he hasn't been with him all along. By showing up, I mean this. He, 
in a way that Jacob can clearly understand, lets him know, I'm here with you. What an amazing thing that he would do this. God's at work. He's active. He's present. And he's letting Jacob know this. It's interesting, in verse 2, God, or Jacob says this, this is God's camp. This is God's camp. What he sees is, really, what he sees, this, this, this view of angels that he sees, is really God's army. He, and he says, this is God's camp. And, and I mean, how reassuring to know this. How reassuring to know this that tomorrow when you go back to work, and that as you're wrestling with issues, raising your family, as you're dealing with, with the stresses of life, maybe health concerns, as two families in our church family are wrestling with the death of loved ones, guess what? God's in their camp with the host of his angels. He names it Mahanaim, which means two camps. Jacob literally is looking at this. I've got this large camp that I didn't have when I left, and there's God's camp with me. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to think more highly of myself than people in Scripture. Anybody else do that? Like, how stupid could you be, right? I tend to think more highly of myself than I should, especially when it comes to Scripture. If, if I'm Jacob at this point, I am riding high. Anybody with me? I think I am, right? I've got, I've got God's camp with me. There's nothing I can't do. There's nothing that I can't face because God is powerfully with me. However, we have a faithful God, but what we see here is Jacob's faith totally melting into fear, secondly. That's what we see here, is Jacob's faith totally melting into fear. So, in verses 3 through 5, we have Jacob doing something that, that we would expect him to do, right? It's been 20 years since he's seen Esau, and when he last saw Esau, did, did he leave that situation well, church? No! He was literally rushed out of town by his mother and his father, right? He was rushed out of town, and remember, remember what his mother said to him. She said, you go, you go to Uncle Laban, you go find yourself a wife, you, you, you take care of business up there, and I will get word to you that when Esau has forgotten about this, when Esau has cooled down, then you can come home, right? Got to remember, Jacob was a mama's boy, right? Even as a grown man, he was a mama's boy, right? And so mama wanted to keep that boy as close as she could. What hasn't happened for 20 years, though? Apparently, Esau hasn't cooled off, has he? Apparently, things aren't any better because Mama hasn't sent for her son. What's interesting to note is this. And we need to think about some geography here for a second. I know, summer, it's kids. Kids are like, geography? Are you kidding me, Pastor Dan? That's the worst. Maybe you need the help from a map in the back of your Bible right now. This might be helpful to you. But if you can find a map of Israel, I want to just point something out. In fact, one of the commentators I read makes this point, and I agree with him completely. There is no geographical or physical reason to bring Esau into this equation right now. Because notice where, where Esau is. Look at verse 3. Esau is in the land of Seir. If you find a map of Israel, 
you can, you can note some, some important things. Out on the west, Israel is bordered by what, what body of water? Mediterranean, right? And up north in Israel, you have this small little sea, which is what? Sea of Galilee. There's a river that runs directly south of that, and it runs into what is known as what? Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, right? Okay. Some of you are using products from the Dead Sea right now. Dead Sea salt, it makes it so much better, right? You go further south of that, and you go way down into the wilderness, and what you will find is where Esau lives. That's where Esau lives. He lives down in the barren wilderness, okay? And, and, and where Jacob is heading, Jacob is not going to go any farther south than the Dead Sea, where he's going to. Bethel is not any farther south than the Dead Sea. So there's no geographical reason to even put a stick in the hornet's nest, is there? There may not be a geographical reason, but there is a spiritual reason. There is a spiritual reason. Some of you know that reason right now. Some of you that are estranged from family members. Some of you that, that, are, that have, have been either wronged or have wronged somebody. You know what it's like to feel like the relationship isn't right. Do you know what I'm talking about? And for 20 years, this has been gnawing at Jacob. Jacob is a different man than when he left. When he left, he was more than happy to sneak out of town. Now that he's coming back, his, he's got a problem. And it's a problem that you and I all have unless you have totally seared yours. He's got a problem with his conscience. <laughs> his conscience won't allow him to not contact Esau because he knows that there's a problem there. He knows he has wronged Esau. He has deceived him. But there's also another problem. He knows that Esau wants him dead, right? Mark this down. Sometimes your sensitive conscience can be the source of your fear. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. Many times God uses our conscience to prompt us to, to make things right with Him and to make things right with others. But Jacob's sensitive conscience was the source of his fear here. And he has this desire, I believe as I look at this and read this, he has this desire to reconcile. How do I know this? Well, there's four things that I see in, in these verses that kind of indicate that he wants to reconcile. First and foremost, he initiates the meeting, doesn't he? He initiates the meeting. He sends his servants to go find Esau. Now, if I were counseling Jacob today, I would probably recommend this. Don't send anybody else. You go yourself. And if you're worried about how this is going to turn out, just have your family camp here. You get on a camel, maybe get one of, your, one of your bigger servants to go with you, and you go talk to him, right? But he has a desire to initiate a meeting here. The second thing I see here that indicates to me where his heart is, is the humility with which he asks his servants to address Esau. Notice it. Verse 4, you shall say to my Lord Esau. Now, stop here. In all reality, who is Lord over Esau? Jacob. Remember the promise before they were born, the older will serve the younger. 
okay? And that's already born fruit. Now, in, in the way that Jacob went about getting it, it was totally dishonest, but did he get his father's blessing? So he now is the guy who's large and in charge, right? He's the Lord, Esau's the servant, but he says to his servants, no, when you address him, you say, hey, we come from your servant Jacob, Lord Esau. And in verse 5, this isn't a braggadocious statement. He's letting him know, hey, you probably know Esau. When I left, I had nothing. Now I'm coming back and I have some means here. And, and I think what he's hinting at here, when he says, if I may find favor in your sight, he's hinting at the fact, I need to make restitution to you and I have the means by which to make restitution. And look, he's looking to find favor He's looking to clear up the things that are between them. How many of you agree with me? That's a good thing, right? The desire to reconcile is a good thing here, right? And it seems like he's going about it in a pretty good way. But that's going to all melt into fear in verse 6, verses 6 through 8, because what happens? No sooner does he send them away, but the way the wording is described here, we're not even sure if the servants got to where Esau lived or that Esau met them on the way. As they were going south, Esau was coming north, and he's coming with 400 men. You say, what's the significance of 400 men? Well, one, it's a lot of men, right? Okay? If he's coming just to make a social call, he's not bringing 400 men with him, right? That means you've got to outfit them, you've got to feed them, you've got you to keep them on animal. That's a big undertaking to bring 400 men. According to the Torah commentary, which is written by... Jewish scholars who understood this time, the Torah commentary says this, this was the standard size for a, for a militia. This is the standard size for a militia. If this was a Western movie, Esau has got himself together one nice posse, hasn't he? And the lead rider's carrying a rope. There's going to be trouble in them parts, Right? Here's what's going on here, and I want you to see this. Does Jacob have any idea why Esau is coming, church? Does he know his intentions? Does he know Esau's state of mind? What is he doing? He's doing what you and I do. He's making assumptions, right? How do we know he's making assumptions? Well, because of the way he responds. Moses records for us, I pointed this out, he is greatly afraid and distressed, right? He's literally quaking in his boots or his sandals. And what does he do? He divides everything in half. He's thinking here pros and cons, and he's hoping this, maybe, maybe I can get out of here with half my family, half my servants, and half my wealth. And I got to ask ourselves, where is his picture of God that he just saw? Right? And before we throw stones at him, how often do we forget who God is? What's interesting here is that Moses, Moses absolutely does this beautiful play on words. In verse, look at me, with me, 
in verse 7, he says this, he divided them into what? Two camps. That is the same word in Hebrew as Mahanaim in verse 2. So in other words, Jacob went from two camps, God's camp, my camp, to over here just a few days later, two camps. Which one's going to make it? And make no mistake, Jacob's making sure he gets in the camp that makes it. Right? What's changed here? Has God pulled away his camp? No, Jacob has, has now divided his camp, and really the reality is there's three camps still, right? Jacob has two, God still has his camp. So Jacob makes a plan in his fear, and then Jacob starts to get some things right, though. Because in verse 9, what does Jacob do? He prays. Now, church, if we were counseling Jacob, would we have told him to plan first or pray first? Come on, you're all good Jesus-loving churchgoers. What would we tell him to do first? Pray first, right? Oh, amen, pastor. Pray. Always pray. The next time you get in a fearful situation, tell that to yourself. Right? He, he did pray. The order may not have been good. He has this desperate plan, and then he prays. We would have rather him have a dependent prayer and then plan, right? What's interesting is this is the first recorded prayer of Jacob. And before we totally dismiss it as, okay, you wait till you're in trouble to pray, I want you to see he does a couple, couple things here really well. First of all, he properly addresses God. You see it there in verse 9, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord. He uses two different names for God. In the first one that's, that in our, is in our English Bibles as God, that's Elohim, the general name for God, right? But then secondly, he addresses him as Jehovah, Lord, the one who keeps covenant with his people. And does God have a covenant with Jacob? If you are the child of God, does God have a covenant with you? Is God going to keep his covenant? Is God going to ever back down on his covenant? And so when he addresses God, he's praying, you're the God, you're the covenant-keeping God. That's the kind of God I need in this situation. So he addresses God the right way. Secondly, he has a good view of who he is. You see it there in verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all of the deeds of steadfast love and all the unfaithfulness that you have shown your servant. Is that a true statement? Let's be honest. Jacob's a scoundrel. Begin again. So is Scarberry. Scarberry is a scoundrel. And so are you. You're all scoundrels, are you not? Jacob doesn't deserve any of this. And he's coming to God not based on his worthiness to have this prayer answered, but he's coming to God on the basis of the fact that God is a merciful and faithful God. And let me tell you this, even when you're in desperate situations, you can always go to God on the basis of his faithfulness and his mercy, not yours. Yeah, we're told to go to the throne boldly. That's in our New Testaments, right? But don't misinterpret as going to the throne boldly as going to the throne demandingly. 
Let me say that again. Don't misinterpret going to the throne boldly as going to the throne demandingly. Jacob's not going demandingly here. He's going desperately, but not demandingly. There's a third thing he does right. He, he recounts God's faithfulness in the past. Do you see it there? Where he says this, For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. He, he understands this. I'm not worthy of this, and I also understand, God, you have been good to me. I would call this proper adoration and praise. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? If you aren't praising God when you're praying, even in the most desperate of situations, you ain't doing it right. I know I said the word ain't. Someone's already typing on the internet. Please don't use bad English. When we pray, when we pray, even in desperate situations, it is always, always good to acknowledge God and His prior blessings to us. That's the way you keep yourself from being demanding of God. And finally, he gets around to asking, doesn't he? He finally gets around to asking. Do you see it there? Verse 11, this isn't a real nuanced request. <laughs> Please deliver me from the hand of my brother. Not a lot of these and thous in there, not a lot of flowery language, not a lot of trying to impress God with all my spiritual speak. God, deliver me. I need you to deliver me because I'm afraid. Do you see it there? For I fear him. I'm afraid. Does God know he's afraid? Does he know he's afraid? Yeah, he does. But he confesses it before him. I'm afraid here. Now, if we want to be picky here, the one thing he didn't ask for is he didn't ask God for a plan, did he? He didn't ask God for a plan. He didn't ask God for wisdom and making a plan. But, but for the most part, this prayer is pretty good. And notice when he asks the request, he has a basis for asking the request. Do you see it there in verse 12? You said... You told me, God, that you will surely do good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. Here's J Jacob basically reminding God, kind of like what your kid says to you, you said, Mom, you promised, Mom. Here's Jacob going to God. God, you promised that my offspring would be like the multitude of the, of the sands on the seashore. And, and you've done pretty well here, God. I've got 12 kids. Twelve's better than six, God. Keep your promise. But even with all of his praying, his plan doesn't show much faith, does it? His plan doesn't show much faith. And, and, and this sets us up for next week, honestly. This sets us up for next week because it gives us a picture of Jacob's mindset here. And here's Jacob's mindset. You want Jacob's mindset in one word? Well, I'll do it in a hyphenated two words. Self-preservation. That's Jacob's mindset. Self-preservation. Okay? And, and I want you to catch this. Pay attention up here. I want you to catch this. I don't want you to miss the obvious. He's had a vision of God's army, has he not? 
He's seen God's army. He has prayed well. Has he not, church? Has he prayed well? And he has seen God's army, and yet he still is struggling for faith. I want you to see that because I know, because none of you are different than me. There are times when I get in the Word, and I see God's army, and I see how God's acted, and I have prayed my heart out to Him, and yet I'm still afraid. Anybody else with me on that? That sets up the wrestling match with God. Spoiler alert. That sets up the wrestling match with God. But get a picture of what he's doing here. 550 animals. Okay? That's a lot of animals, isn't it? 550. And and here's here's the way it looks. We're going to start out with 200 female goats. And then a big space. Then we're going to have 20 male goats. And then a big space. Then we're going to have... 200 ewes, and then a what church? Then we're going to have 20 rams, and then what church? You thought Johnstown's parade was long (laughs) if you were sitting in traffic trying to get through town. Then 30 camels and their calves, and what church? Then 40 cows and 10 bulls, and what church? Then 20 female donkeys, hee-haw, and what? And then 10 male donkeys, and at the end is the biggest donkey of all, Jacob. Do you see that? And catch this, and I want you to see this. And and they're all told to say the same thing, you know, moreover your servant, Jacob, is behind us. And I want you to catch this in verse 20. I want you to catch Jacob's mindset. And this, this is what lack of faith will do to us. His mindset is, notice, Moses clues us in, for he thought. Okay, is that pretty good indicator that we're going to get his mindset here, church? For he thought. This is what he's thinking. I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Who is the emphasis on here, church? It's on Jacob's ability to change Esau's heart. Again, pay attention up here. You can't change one person's heart. There is nothing you can do to change a person's heart. But who can? Who's the only one who can? And so, who should have Jacob been more afraid of, God or of Esau? Jacob is trying to change Esau's heart. He's literally trying to buy him off. That's what he's trying to do. And and again, I just want to point this out. Jacob has shown some growth here. He prayed, but Jacob has a long way to go. Does that sound like anybody you know sitting in your seat? Can I make it more personal? Jacob has shown some growth. He's seen God. He's seen God's army. He prayed. And then he melted into fear. Sound like anybody you know? Fear is a really powerful enemy, church. 
Fear's a really powerful enemy, and it gets even more powerful when we willingly give ourselves over to it. Right? Every one of you in this room knows we're supposed to battle fear, right? You know that. God told me I'm not supposed to be afraid. And in fact, when we're talking to other people, we do this to them. You know you're not supposed to be afraid. God doesn't want you to be afraid. Preach it. Preach it. Just don't preach it at me. Right? Not supposed to be afraid. When I think about this, I just want to end with four, four quick points here. Fear results from, number one, not knowing God to be trustworthy. If you don't know God to be trustworthy, and, and by that I mean if you've not put your faith and trust in this God, you will be afraid all the time, and honestly, you should be afraid. If you haven't put your complete faith and confidence in this God, you should be afraid this morning. But if you don't know God to be trustworthy, you will fear. Secondly, if you don't believe God to be the one that His Word describes Him to be, you will be afraid. You will be afraid. I find in my own life that I am afraid many times because I forget just how powerful God is. I forget just how loving He is. I forget how good He's been to me. Thirdly, you will be afraid if you're feeling guilty. Again, you probably should be afraid, right? Jacob should have had some fear here. There was something between him and his brother. There was some unconfessed sin. There were some unresolved issues. And it made him afraid. Then fourthly, you will be afraid if you forget the promises of God and His presence. You will be afraid. I don't know where you're at today this morning. Maybe you need to turn to Christ for salvation. If, that, if that's where you're at today, praise God. Because you know what? That is ultimately, removal of fear comes in the presence of Jesus. Maybe you got to confess some unbelief to God. Maybe you need to spend some time in the Word just recounting the promises of God to you. Maybe you've forgotten those. Maybe you need to confess some sins and give no foothold to guilt in your life. I don't know, but I know this. God's not done. How do I know this? If I was God with Jacob and I had just taken the time to send my army so that he could see it and, and reveal it to him and Jacob acted the way he did, I, I know what I would have done as God. Maybe anybody else with me, I'd have been like, that's it, you're squashed like a bug. I'm the all-powerful God. I can get another plan for my people. You're the weakest link, Jacob. You're out. God's not done with him. You know what God does? I don't want to ruin this for you, Paul. God condescends to come down to Jacob and to wrestle with him. That's what he does. That's how much he loves Jacob. He condescends to come down and wrestle with him. And what we're going to find out is that after God wrestles with Jacob, Jacob leaves not just a physically changed man, but he leaves a much bolder man. Humble man, but bolder. 
He's not nearly as afraid. Careful, then, with wanting to battle your fears. It may involve you wrestling with God. And I can guarantee you this, anyone who's wrestled with God has left that encounter changed. Father, forgive us for that never-ending battle with fear. Forgive us for allowing emotions and circumstances to rule our thinking to the point that we don't see the reality that, that the army of heaven is camped right with us. Forgive us for forgetting the promise of Jesus when he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you to the end of the age. For those in this room, Father, though, that don't know Christ as their Savior, I pray that that fear would motivate them to run to the cross. Not walk, but run to the cross to find grace and mercy. We thank you for your word. Lord, we pray for our church family this week. Lord, there's a lot of things happening in our church family. People that, that have major things happening, reasons to be afraid. I pray that you would, would give to them that spirit of love and power and, and sound thinking and self-control. Overrule the fears, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.